Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Good to be with you this morning. If you're new with us, my name is Landon and I get to be one of the team members here with restoration. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 17. Uh, that's where we'll be spending a portion of our time this morning. Um, we're towards the end now of what we call one of our, our practices. We don't want to just learn information that's kind of stagnant about Jesus, but we want to put into practice the way of Jesus. So we do these things called practices. Uh, we're almost to the end. We have two weeks left of this practice of what it looks like to be faithful citizens of both King Jesus and the community that we're a part of because the scriptures call us to be faithful citizens to both. Last week we talked a little bit about the call that we have based in the scriptures to seek the welfare of our neighbors, of the community around us, of all of our neighbors, the ones we like and the ones we might not like so much, the ones we agree with and the ones that frustrate us or annoy us or seem to be working against us, Christ calls us to love all of our neighbors. And so today we'll kind of continue in that discussion with one specific way I think we can seek the welfare of the community around us, of uh, the neighbors that God has placed us near to. And uh, this book called Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson, uh, he poses this question that I want us to, to ponder for just a moment. Do you think that God is happy? Like when you think of God or however you interact with him in the day-to-day -day of your lives, do you think that God is happy? Do you think that he's filled with joy? Think about that for a second. I think there's a whole host of implications that come about based on how you answer that question. For instance, if God is kind of this worst possible kind of perfectionist, then what does that mean in the midst of the everyday stuff of our lives when we are honest about our many imperfections? How does that change our relationship, the ongoing dialogue that we have with Jesus? If he's angry when we're less than perfect, if he only cares that we do things right or we avoid the wrong, how is that going to kind of have implications and impact our everyday moments, our relationships, marriages, parenting, workplaces, how we treat our neighbors based on who you think God is? Really in terms of feelings, too. I think so often as the church, as followers of Jesus, we get caught up in a catechism-like list of information about our God. But what do you feel when you think about Jesus? Because what you feel when you think about him is going to impact a lot of what your life looks like if you're trusting him. If you're trusting what you think is an angry God, that will have one impact. If you're trusting what you think is a God filled with laughter and joy and kindness, that is going to have a very different type of impact. If you're trusting a God that you think is boring, 
that's going to have a different impact as well. In the same book, John Tyson says this, cynicism is killing our nation. It's destroying our hearts. It's putting us in a place where we cannot appreciate the joy that comes from the good news we have been given. But God has an antidote to cynicism, his presence, his redemption, and his fullness of joy. When we take time to celebrate, whether personally or in community, we are bringing the glory of God into the brokenness of the world around us. We're accurately representing the God we serve and offering tangible grace to the world. John Ortberg says something similar, and I think both of these matter. He says, we will not understand God until we understand this about him. God is the happiest being in the universe. God also knows sorrow. I love this about our God. Let me pause there for a second. I love this about the scriptures. They are deeply honest. They are not shying away from the broken and the brutal and the suffering. Our God does not do that. He dives right into both, and that is essential. Jesus is remembered, among other things, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, both are real, is his temporary response to a fallen world. That sorrow will be banished forever from his heart on the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. Our lives, oftentimes, as Christians, as the church, are probably characterized by this set of qualities we're familiar with, we've talked about, right? Judgmental, hypocritical. But the one that really is sticking out to me lately is boring. I think Christians are known as being deeply boring. Even in our concept that we talked about of of heaven and hell last week, I think so much of the concept kind of projects a vision of just a deeply boring, loathsome eternity. And that's significant because rightfully so, most humans don't want anything to do with boring. Another word that comes to mind that Nate and I have been talking about a bunch this week is this word sterile. My my wife's a nurse, and in that context, it is really important that you can create a sterile environment if somebody is going into surgery. That's something you want. But if all of life is sterile, it sounds miserable. We don't all want to be wearing scrubs and washing our hands nonstop and like having distance and all of this. That's just not good. Yet, I think what's happened in Christianity is, is perhaps we've gotten so worried about avoiding the bad things in life that what we've actually created is a sterile type of community, maybe even a sterile concept of Jesus. That is devastating because I couldn't be further from the truth of who Jesus actually is. We've, We've heard this idea of innocent until proven guilty. I think often in the church, maybe the opposite is what we live into. When we talk about the things of this world, what what possibilities there are, it seems as if we treat most things as if they are guilty until proven innocent. And we work so hard again to stay clean, to avoid the bad, that everything, especially the physical in this life, we're going to view as guilty until we can prove it innocent. But it is oh so hard to prove anything innocent. So much so, I think if we looked at the life of Jesus, if we walked with him and his community, and we went to the places he went, 
And so the parties he went to and the type of weddings and feasts and festivals to the political parties that he went in and had discussions with, we would probably have a whole lot to judge Jesus about. And it makes us question if we need to step back and review what our idea of this God is. We often say that celebration is a way more powerful commodity than critique. Our world is filled with cynicism. Critique is everywhere. But I think celebration is actually more powerful than that. And I think it's something that we as a church, as a people of God especially, need to put into practice. John Tyson says this about celebration. The more we practice the discipline of celebration, the more it will become an instinct. Instead of passing over moments of grace and redemption, meaning in the context of just the little everyday stuff of life moments, the more we will mark them and hope and love will seep into our cynical world. That's significant. I think I've, I've taught on this idea of celebration one other time in about five minutes before I got on stage. We were doing worship, this is many years ago. About five minutes before I got on stage to, to teach, my wife came up to me in tears uh, to let me know that she was in the midst of having a miscarriage. And I had, I mean, you do the math, 300 seconds to kind of compose myself as she's crying to come and teach on celebration. Life goes that way, though. Life is going to be filled with brokenness and suffering and hurt and pain and confusion. Every single one of you sitting or standing in this room has experienced that and will continue to. Now, here's a key word, and, not but, and. The peace and hope and joy of Christ can triumph through those moments, not instead of. God is honest with us and walks with us in the midst of those, but he triumphs. I'm like the least adequate person ever to teach on celebration. I am deeply boring. I would not want to hang out with me. I need fun friends, but this is still what we're called to. Two key truths that we, if we're going to embrace our identity as exiles, seeking to be faithful citizens, have to really grasp. Number one is this. All good things come from Jesus. Some of you need to emphasize the word all because you have like a tiny category of the word all and you have a massive list of things that are not okay. And I'm not saying the scriptures don't say some things are not okay. A better way to put it is there's a lot of things the scriptures say are bad for us. But all good things are rooted in the creator, Jesus. All good things. He created and he declared again and again and again and like seven more times because we're really slow. It is Good. Read Genesis 1 and 2. It's amazing. It's this beautiful poetry. Second thing, Christians of all people have the most to celebrate. I talk about this all the time, but that is not what we're known for. And so what does that communicate? If we sing in our songs and write in our words and books that we have the most to celebrate and then we look like a boring people, what does it say? Our Jesus is not worth celebrating. That's what it communicates. Communicates we're tied into some lame tradition that our parents handed down or we're afraid of hell or whatever it is. And so we grasp onto this thing for whatever reason, but it's really not that great that Jesus isn't actually trustworthy. There's a disconnect between the words we say, the things we proclaim, the truths, the information we express, and the way we walk through life.
I want to look at kind of a biblical standpoint of each of those two things I said. Beginning in Acts 17, Jesus has died and rose. The Apostle Paul's life has been totally flipped. He's persecuting and killing Christians, and then he changes everything when he experiences Jesus. Notice that. That's the type of lives, impact, reputation Jesus should have in our lives. We're not all persecuting Christians first, but there should be a massive shift that is noticeable because Jesus changes us. And he did with Paul. And so Paul is now in Athens. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 22 of Acts 17. Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said to this group of philosophers, men of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. I love this verse. What you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Paul recognized something about the people in his life. They were naturally, they could not help themselves from worshiping Jesus. They just did not know Jesus. They couldn't help but to enjoy the good that God had made and to begin to worship this unknown God, though he was unknown to them. And so Paul looked at what's going on in their lives, and he goes, let me point something out to you. You're already worshiping a God. We continue here in verse 24. Now he tells them who this God is, the God who made the world and everything in it, the God among gods that you're already worshiping. People around us, just like the people around Paul, are in ignorance, meaning without knowing it, already enjoying the good that Jesus has provided in this world. They're already enjoying the brilliant design of the Father as creator. In a unique way, they're already worshiping him, just without knowingly worshiping him, or without wanting to worship him, not wanting to give credit where credit is due. I love this line. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. As we walk, journey, drive, whatever it is, through the everyday stuff of life in our neighborhoods, workplaces, homes, relationships, grocery stores, banks, there's good. And we have these windows of opportunity to step into and speak up as faithful citizens, to express the good that the people around us are enjoying comes from Jesus. We can do that in explicit and blunt ways, or we can do it kind of more subtly. Either way, it needs to be respectfully and thoughtfully and winsomely, intentionally. But we have these moments of opportunity when there's good to point it out. My friend Bill, who was an elder here before he uh, moved back down to the valley, used to do this in incredible ways I would never do. I can't carry myself like Bill does. But I loved watching it. We'd be somewhere at a restaurant and he'd see a, a young family or something and two parents interacting with their kids and he'd walk up and he would just be like, what a gift children are. And he goes, the way that you love your children, that's Christ in you. And in my head, I'm like, oh my gosh, you can't say that. Are you crazy, Bill? And I'm like, do you know, they're going to like hate you. They're going to swing a figurative baseball bat. This is uncomfortable. We're probably going to get sued and canceled and everything else. And I don't do that kind of thing. 
But I cannot tell you how many times I watched Bill use that line, that's Christ in you. How someone handles their business, the things they build, create, their relationships, how they establish a home, hospitality. I heard it so many times, and every time I had the same kind of like, oh boy. And do you know how many times people uh, reacted poorly? Zero. Never once saw it. Even if they totally disagreed, even if they thought he was crazy, there was this refreshment in their face. They're like, you're right, this is good. A spark, a thought, an idea, a seed born to go, I'm already worshiping that thing. This is a good, and Bill planted a seed, an idea, a thought of where it actually came from. Now, he didn't need to keep pounding it with a hammer, making it incredibly religious until they finally did. He didn't need to say, you need to be terrified of hell, by the way, in case you want to enjoy these things forever. No, it was just subtle and good and beautiful, and I still don't know how to do it. I'm going to be much more subtle in my approach and conversations than Bill will. Each of you have your own style, but as faithful citizens of Jesus, if we want to follow him, we have to look for these windows of opportunity to do so. We continue to read, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. That's key. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and we move and we exist. And as even some of your own poets have said, Paul does this so masterfully. He integrates into the everyday stuff of their lives. He views things from their perspective, as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Paul does two things here in Athens, in the book of Acts. Number one, he knows that all good things come from Jesus, and so he pretty remarkably points that out to people already enjoying the good Jesus has created. And then... He recognizes when the same people choose to trust things that are way less trustworthy than Jesus himself, and he points that out. People in your lives and my life, in your neighborhoods and workplaces all around us, they are choosing to trust things and people and ideas that are less trustworthy than Jesus constantly. Now, our gods are not carved out of wood or metal in any way anymore, but we still have the same types of gods nonetheless. Our gods are pleasures, sex, power, control, escape. Our gods are progress and the hope it gives us. Our gods are garage doors and security systems and 401ks. Our gods are political parties and ideologies and the visions they create. If you want to find out who the gods of your neighbors or family members or friends or who your other gods are, all you have to do is think about what you protect the most, what you pour into the most time and money. What do you protect the most? Think about it for a second. What do you give the most to protect? 
And then what do you pour into financially and with your time? Those are things you trust. It could be your vocation. You trust your vocation because it provides the money to pay for the bills. That's not a bad thing, but that means you trust it. What do you trust? What do you pour into and what do you protect? As Paul did here, we have a window of opportunity to point out that people are probably trusting things that in and of themselves are good, but maybe they're exchanging those things and considering them to be more trustworthy than Jesus. And there's a window to point that out in the right time, in the right place, and in the right way. To be faithful citizens, we need to help those around us see the good they're already enjoying and the things they're already trusting. All of them are all fundamentally good things that come from and find their perfection in Jesus. Romans 1.25, Paul says it this way. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever, amen. This is one of, one of Satan's greatest tactics to get us to choose good things to worship. Satan is not an idiot. He doesn't say, pick the worst possible thing that has no value, go worship that. No, he chooses things that God himself made and designed. He tweaks and distorts them and causes us to trust them and causes our neighbors to trust those things more than Jesus himself. We have windows of opportunity to celebrate the good that's already happening. To echo, as followers of Jesus, what God declared in Genesis 1 and 2, it is good. As you walk around this week, look for moments where you can echo God's words in Genesis 1 and 2. It is good. That is good. This is good. We should be people that say that phrase often to ourselves, to our family members, to our friends, to Christians, and to non-Christians. Which leads me to my next point. Christians of all people have the most to celebrate. Look at Romans 15, 13 with me. I love this verse. I'm not a person that like really likes Bible verses. That kind of sounds funny. Like, here's a verse. Memorize this. I don't really do that. But this one is powerful. Paul says this to a church in Rome and a very non-Christian culture. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Back to the first question we asked, who do you think God is? Is he the God of hope? Because that's what the scriptures say. He's not the God of endless anger looking to strike you with lightning when you mess up. He is the God of hope. I love that picture. May the God of hope fill you. May the God of hope give you all joy and peace. This is key. There's a difference between postures and gestures. Your posture is kind of your normal state of being. How you stand, how you sit, it's your resting place. It's the norm. A gesture is a motion, one time and back. Our posture as Christians should be one of joy and peace and hope. Now, we will have gestures of lament and suffering and confusion and brokenness. Those will be realities in our lives. But the joy, peace, and hope of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, they don't ignore the bad and the suffering, but they supersede circumstances in a way that only the power of the Spirit can do. Are you characterized as being a person of hope? 
Like, would anybody in your life describe you as a person of hope? If not, and you claim to follow Jesus, something is missing. And, and let me be really, really, really clear. I do not say that in a judgmental way like you're messing up. I say it in an invitational way because the Spirit wants to outpour his love upon us. And probably all you have to do is ask, Jesus, give me this type of peace and joy and hope. That does not mean he will change your circumstances. It means by the power of his Spirit, he gives you a hope and joy and peace that go beyond circumstances. That doesn't mean things will be easy, but it means he's good even when things are not easy and even when things are broken so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I remember my freshman year of college, I arrived in Virginia, and I thought I had everything figured out. It was going to be great, and I went to the cafeteria with my friend Zach, who moved to Virginia with me, and I went to find this wonderful cappuccino machine, and I'm like, this is great. I can have as many cappuccinos as I want. This is glorious. So I grabbed a, a mug. There's this wall of mugs right here, and then the cappuccino machine right here, and I go, this is great. Zach's sitting back there. I grab the mug, and then I press the button, and here comes my cappuccino, and I'm envisioning my college days starting with a cappuccino whenever I want, and it's going to be glorious, and it starts to pour, and I smell the coffee, and it's going to be good, and then it keeps pouring, and I'm looking at it like, huh. I don't really understand how much works in life. I wonder how this thing's going to stop. It doesn't stop. And so as it keeps pouring, I'm like, uh-oh, what do I do? So I grab another mug, and I, I move the one where it's pouring real quick. I'm fast. And I put the next one under it, and now I've got two mugs of cappuccinos, and I'm thinking really quickly, you know what? Why not have two? It's my first day of college. It's going to be great. But about the time I think that, this one's almost filled. So I move the next one, and I grab another mug. And now there's a line of people behind me, and I'm looking at Zach. He's two years older than me. He's smarter. I'm like, help. What do I do? I don't know how to shut this off. I actually, to this day, don't remember how I got it off, but it was like five mugs in, someone helped or something, but it's overflowing. This is kind of the image I have of the Holy Spirit causing us to overflow with hope. It doesn't stop. It can't stop. It won't stop. It just keeps going. Have you experienced that? Hope that overflows. That is Jesus. That is not boring. That is not sterile. That is the, the promise of the king that we have. And if we're not experiencing that, let me say it again, you're missing something. I do not say that in a judgmental way. I say it in an invitational way because that's what he offers. Maybe you're too busy or too distracted to receive that, but that's who he is and what he wants you to have. Christians are to be hope-embodied, walking in the streets, businesses, marketplaces, and neighborhoods of our greater community. Are we? Is that what we're known for? Have you ever experienced someone you know and love who's just like deeply misunderstood? A child, a friend, someone, someone you care about, and just from other people's perception, you know they just don't understand this person. That's like the worst because you want to change it and control so that everyone knows them for who they actually are. And that's how I feel about Jesus in this. He is not boring. He is good. Yet we, as the church, called to be the movie preview, movie trailer to his upcoming movie, often make people have no interest in seeing that movie. Because it just looks awful. 
That just can't be. The job that he has given us to reflect his love and goodness and laughter and joy and hope and peace is too significant. John Tyson says it this way. The local church communities we are a part of need to put the good news of Jesus at the center of our lives. Just pause there. The word gospel means good news. We talked about this last week. How often is the, the name and way and love of Jesus actually perceived as good news? Beyond salvation, because it's meant to be that. We must learn to choose this way of thinking and living. We need to be known for more than the credo adherence, service of the poor, and convictions about biblical ethics. All good things. We need to be known as those who know how to celebrate and party. Those with instincts of joy, who seize the moment and mark redemption, who order desserts, raise glasses high, create space for sharing the work of God, and root it all in his goodness. I love what he says uh, about, about resistance and celebration combined. If we can go to that, that next one. The local, nope, not that one. Celebration is explicit and it is defiant. Have you ever thought about celebration in that way? It's explicit and it's defiant. Not only does it recognize who God is and what he is doing, but it also calls for a response. When people see us celebrate, they go, what are they celebrating? That must be worthwhile. There's no longer a contradiction between what we say is true about our God and how we live because of who our God is. Celebration is godly defiance and a culture of doubt. As we close, I want to read one last passage that just kind of blew me away this week from this book. John Tyson writes, I was at one of these redemption celebrations with a group of my friends not long ago. A crew of us from the city were gathered around a table reveling in all God had done. When's the last time you've reveled in all God had done with other people? In a public place. Person by person, we opened our hearts and shared God's goodness. We laughed till it hurt, wept tears of gratitude, and ate until we were content. People shared freedom from sexual addiction, deliverance from a judgmental spirit, reconciled relationships with family, promotions at work, and fresh hope in a strained marriage. At the end of the meal, we all raised our glasses and yelled to the king and to the kingdom. The whole restaurant turned around for a second drawn into the spirit of the moment. Later, the server, who had caught snippets of our stories, said to me, that was the most hopeful thing I have encountered in years, and I don't even believe in God. Thank you. That is inspiring. That is the image of the type of celebrations we should have, the type of people we should be. I love that idea, and so I was just processing it this week. I decided I want to make this idea of raising a glass and making a toast to Jesus the way that my family will now start into our 24-hour Sabbath rest. And so my wife was working. I had the four kids. After I picked them up from school, we went to a store, and I let them each pick out a quote-unquote fancy glass. And so they each picked out a unique one, and then I got out a... Uh, like Expo, Sharpie, whatever, put the, their initials on it because they wanted to make sure that they had their own fancy glass. Then I wanted to get them some like sparkling cider or something that we could pour into their glasses and raise a glass to make a toast, but I couldn't find it, so I just made them all Shirley Temples, and Chelsea loves those, and so I poured four glasses of Shirley Temples. Then I had my own drink. It was better than a Shirley Temple. And I was going to raise a glass and make a toast to Jesus, not in a corny, cheesy way, but because he's actually good. 
And in this moment, I was about to do so. I said, here's what we're going to do. Grab your glass with their pink-filled liquid, hold it up high, and we're going to say some things about Jesus who's worthy of our celebration. And I started to think about what I was going to say, and then my oldest daughter, Leah, went, can I do it? And I said, sure. And so she raised her glass, and she made sure that uh, her, her little siblings did. And I have a little almost two-year-old, and she had a, a sippy cup that she drinks milk out of that she just wanted ice in, and she's clinking everybody's glass. I don't trust her with glass yet. As Aaliyah's trying to raise her glass to make a toast, and then Aaliyah just kept it very short and simple but beautiful. She said, to Jesus, because of his kindness. And then they clanked their glasses, they said cheers, and we drank. And it was simple. My little eight-year-old raised a glass, gave a toast to Jesus. And it was beautiful in the midst of the everyday stuff of life. I'm terrible at celebrating, but I want to put it into practice. I want to learn how to do that together because who Jesus is is too important to create a boring image of our God. That's not who he is. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, and if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.